The teaching for this evening is based on Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. And this is God's Word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During the uh, weeks leading up to today, to Christmas, we have, we've been spending some time reflecting on Matthew's genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 to help us to reflect on uh, what it means that Jesus was born. What does it mean that he became a human being, that the Son of God took on flesh? And so far, what we learned from looking at Matthew's genealogy was it's a story. And it's a story that uh, has a big picture to it, that it's built around the great promises that God made, first to Abraham and then to King David. And Matthew is trying to tell us through this genealogy that this Jesus who has come, about whose birth we are reading, he is the, he's the fulfillment of these great, long-awaited promises. But not only that, we've also noticed that Matthew's genealogy is a bit unusual, that Jesus' family tree uh, doesn't necessarily fit the normal ancient Near Eastern uh, list of uh, family members and uh, grandparents because Matthew actually includes five women in his genealogy. And right away, we are introduced to something unusual, and Matthew is trying to tell us something about this Jesus by including these five women. And they're not the five women that you might expect. They're not uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah. They're not the matriarchs of the Old Testament stories. There were... Tamar, uh, the daughter-in-law of Judah, there's Rahab, there's Ruth, there's Bathsheba, and now we come to Mary, and what we've noticed so far is that these five women help us understand something about who this Jesus is, who he came for, and what he came to do. So, for example, Tamar's story Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, and she seduces her father-in-law into having a child with her in order to carry on the family name. Judah's story tells us, teaches us, that Jesus has come for sinners. But then we move on to Rahab. She's a, a prostitute. She's a Canaanite. She lives in the city of Jericho. And her story, she encounters the spies from, sent by Joshua, who was going to lead God's people into the promised land. 
and she encounters these spies and is a beautiful picture of what it means to receive God's salvation by faith alone. She had nothing to commend herself. And all we read of her is her confession, her belief, her trust in God's grace and his mercy alone. And then we come to Ruth, who's a Moabite. And Ruth's story teaches us that this grace that Jesus brings to the whole world and freely offers to any who would receive it is that that grace is not just for those who are near, for the insiders, but it's for the outsiders, those who don't belong, those you would least expect to be included into God's great plan of redemption. And then we come to the story of David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba is described in Matthew's genealogy as the wife of Uriah. And the story of David and Bathsheba, among a many number of other things, teaches us that God forgives. That the essence of God's salvation is forgiveness. And so through these stories, we're being prepared for this story. The story of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who... Matthew introduces to us in verse 16, which you don't have in your worship folder, but let me read it to you. Verse 16 reads like this. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, at first read, that might not seem that different to you, but if you were to go back and read Matthew's genealogy, there is a pattern that is consistent from verse 2 all the way up until Joseph. And it's Joseph where it breaks. And that pattern goes like this. That so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. And then so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. And on and on. So for example, early on it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac the father of Jacob. And that pattern goes and continues until you get to verse 16. We, you do not read Joseph the father of Jesus, by Mary. What you read is, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Very intriguingly, at the end of this genealogy, Matthew changes the pattern. And he alerts us to there's something about this woman and the story that she is a part. And this man, Joseph, that is... Unusual. It's unique. It's different. And while, as we're going to see, when we read the story that uh, we just read, it's predominantly told from Joseph's point of view, Matthew summarizes for us the significance of Mary and her role in the story. When you look in verse 22 and 23 of Matthew chapter 1, where he summarizes the story for us, and he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, when it comes to talking about the birth of Jesus, uh, especially, I suppose, down here in the South, this is a story that's familiar. And there's any number of things we could talk about, but what I want us to think about tonight, the one thing I want you to leave here meditating on is the, is the name Emmanuel. What does it mean 
that God comes near. That the story of Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe coming near you to dwell with us in the flesh, to walk in the same realities and circumstances, aches and pains, joys and sorrows that you and I walk. That here in this story, what Mary's story teaches us is that God has come near. And not only that, we could put it slightly differently and say it like this, that God, in the story of Mary, in the birth of Jesus, that God does not wait for us to come to him. He willingly comes to us. And not just to be near you, but to save you, to rescue you to welcome you into his family. And so what I want to do this evening is briefly look at three things from this story. I just want to highlight one aspect of this, the birth of Jesus here. And then I want to spend a little time reflecting on this idea of what does it mean for Jesus to dwell with us and look at the idea of the, Jesus' presence and his work. So first, let's look here for a moment just at the birth of Jesus, because right away, this story where Matthew begins in verse 18, he says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. He's telling us how it happened. And he introduces to us these two characters, Mary and Joseph, who've been betrothed to one another. And all the details that he includes about Mary and Joseph are intended to reinforce the repeated statement that he makes that this child is from the Holy Spirit. That this child being conceived in Mary's womb is not from Joseph. And it's not from any other man. But this is a supernatural work of God in the womb of Mary where God, in ways that are beyond our own comprehension, is bringing together the infinite God in finite human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And right away, we are confronted here. We are brought face-to-face with the supernatural reality of Christianity. Notice in verse 18, Matthew says that this child is from the Holy Spirit. And then, quoting from the angel of the Lord who appeared to, to Joseph in his dream, says that this child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, very uh, briefly, I just want to at least acknowledge the fact. This is really, really strange. None of you have seen this. Uh, I've seen four of my children born. Nothing close to this has ever happened in your life. (laughs) This is really unusual. And I think it gets lost on us, and we take for granted how this is, this is God entering into the realm that you and I live and breathe in every day in a supernatural way. And it's worth asking, what are you to make of this story? Did it really happen? You know, maybe, like I did, I grew up around this, and for the longest time, it never really, I never really questioned that. And, but yet, the more and more I talk to people, especially who didn't grow up in the church, this idea of the supernatural claims of Christianity, did it really happen, is perhaps their biggest difficulty. And now, 
I don't want to go off on a whole long um, defense of this. I just want to ask a question. Often when we face things in the Bible like this, that perhaps create concern or question, did it really happen? I want to suggest to you that the way to address that is to come at it from a different angle, to ask a different question, to ask this kind of question. If this did not happen, the virgin birth or the virgin conception of Jesus, if this didn't happen, why would early Christians create a story like this about the most central figure of their faith when it would no doubt create all kinds of questions and uh, difficulties and even cast an air of illegitimacy over the birth of Jesus? Why would the early Christians make up a story this difficult to believe unless it's what really happened? Without going into all kinds of details, the, only, the best explanation for this story is that it actually happened. Because if you were trying to write a story of an historical account that was accurate, of an event that really took place in real space and time and in history, with the intention of persuading others of its meaning and of its significance and that you should build your life on it, this just isn't how you would do it. And the only real plausible explanation is that the birth of Jesus really did happen. That the early Christians who wrote down what happened did not feel at liberty to alter the story or to take out the details that perhaps were the most difficult to embrace. And Joseph is a perfect illustration of this. Joseph, when confronted with the news that Mary is pregnant, wants to divorce her. And no doubt they talked about it. Luke's narrative explains this in greater detail, but it isn't until a word from the outside, when God addresses Joseph, that he begins to believe this. And why does he believe it? Why do we have this story? If it is perhaps this unusual, why include it? And I think the answer to that question is this. It is the story, it is the only story, that brings hope to the other stories we've been looking at the past four weeks. Just think of David and Bathsheba's story, perhaps the most familiar to us. It is a total abuse of power by supposedly the greatest king in the history of Israel. Or take Judas and Tamar's story, where Tamar is mistreated, cast aside by Judah, and she seduces her father-in-law into uh, having a child with her. These are all stories that cry out for God to intervene, for God to show up, for God to make things right that have gone so horribly wrong. That's why this story is here. It's why we need to hear about Jesus, his presence, and his work. Because the reality is, while our stories may have very different details and circumstances, I, I, I know, because I'm not really any different than you, I know that every one of us in here, you need God to intervene in your life. 
You need God and his Messiah to show up and bring grace and forgiveness and mercy and hope and joy into the darkest nooks and crannies of your life. And that's what happens when we see Jesus show up. That's what it means for him to be called Emmanuel. Notice he quotes again from Isaiah chapter 7 in verses 22 and 23. And this whole idea of Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, to be called that, Matthew is signaling to us that with Jesus' birth, he ushers in a whole new era of God's promise to bless humanity. A whole new era of his presence, of his intimacy even, if you will, with humanity. And it's not as though God wasn't present in the Old Testament. Let me just give you two, the most, two most significant examples are the tabernacle, when God's people are wandering in the wilderness after having been brought out of Egypt and being brought to the promised land. And then as they're in the promised land, and as David has brought peace, relative peace to God's people, and his son Solomon builds a temple which replaces the tabernacle, what were those two things intended to do? The most basic function was that that those two things, that's where heaven and earth overlapped. That's where if you wanted to meet with God, if you want to know that he forgives, that you could have a relationship with him, that's where you went. And what's astounding here is that to, for Jesus to be called Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew is telling us, Jesus, Jesus is where heaven and earth overlap. And it's not a building. And there's no empty mercy seat at the very center of it. But here, in the flesh, God has come to us. And in fact, John, in the opening verses of his, his gospel, when he, when he describes the coming of Jesus, he says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt could also be translated tabernacled. G- John makes explicit that Jesus is the temple. He is where God is present with his people. Now, perhaps you may even be wondering, that's fine for Matthew, and that's maybe great even for the people in the Old Testament, but how do we know that this idea of Jesus, his presence, God with us, is true for us? Well, if you were to sit down and read Matthew's gospel from beginning to end, what you'd begin to notice is... Matthew begins his gospel by proclaiming and asserting that Jesus is God with us. And in the very last verse of this gospel, Jesus says to his disciples and through them to all of God's people down to the ages, when Jesus says to them, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And in fact, Jesus makes a promise to us that he is present with us right now through the gift of his Holy Spirit. Though we don't see him, we behold him by faith, that he is present with us even now 
Now, on the one hand, this idea of Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, it's certainly meant to bring hope and comfort. I, I imagine that it certainly would have been incredibly encouraging. Just imagine Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba re- receiving this news. That regardless of where they're from, what their life history uh, holds, that there is hope for them. The scandalous, the forsaken, the forgotten, the foreigner, the outsider. That God comes near, and they're part of that story. But think about it for a moment. What happens when you really do get to know somebody really well and they come really close to you and they spend a lot of time with you and they see you at your very best and they see you at your very worst? What begins to happen? Their presence can almost repel you. Why? Because to be close to someone also means you become vulnerable. It means you become exposed. You become accessible to them in a way that you no longer can hide. And oftentimes, one of the greatest hindrances to deep relationships isn't the other person. It's that it's what you're afraid they might find out about you. That they might actually see the guilt, the shame, the secret sins you don't want to talk about and work diligently to hide and are so good at you don't even know you do it anymore. You see, this good news of Jesus dwelling with us also means he knows you better than you know yourself. How do you stay in a relationship like that? How do you not run the other way? How do you know God won't run the other way? And the answer to that is the work of Jesus. You see, what if the story of Jesus really is an invitation into a relationship in which you can be fully known and fully loved at the very same time? And you will never have to fear condemnation, rejection, or abandonment. You see, when Matthew records for us here the angel of the Lord appearing to Joseph in a dream, and he says, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Listen to verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is how God can draw near. This is how Jesus can dwell in you by his Holy Spirit and you not have to run away. In fact, you can be honest about who you really are because Jesus has come to save you from your sins. You see, for for Matthew's readers in the first century... For the Messiah to come and save God's people was a commonly held expectation. But the idea of the Messiah, his salvation was essentially freedom from Roman tyranny. It was 
political liberation. It was the reestablishment of God's promised land for his people. But what Matthew is telling us is that this Messiah, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, has come to do something much greater, far more trenchant, much deeper, and far more beautiful. That he has actually come to save us from ourselves. And that isn't just individually, but he's also come to save us from the mess that we collectively make in our own homes, in our own communities, in our own governments, in our own alliances with other governments around the world or lack thereof, the mess that we make in failing to to remember the poor. See, this Jesus has come to save us not just from our own individual personal sins, though that's most definitely true. He has come to save us from the consequences of sin in all of its tentacles and its varieties and its devastation and its brokenness and its dysfunction. You see, the presence of Jesus, God being with you, that's the beginning of the good news. He does not require you to be cleaned up before he enters into your existence and your life. In fact, how God is present in our lives is by saving us, by forgiving us, by doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And in fact, the whole story of the Bible ends with these same themes of the presence of Jesus and the work of Jesus. When the Apostle John, at the very end of the book of Revelation, he writes this, he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And listen to to these words. He says, this is your future, this is your hope, by the way. He He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. This is the message of Jesus' birth. This is a supernatural reality that blows the mind. And yet here we have it. And it's about the presence of God in the flesh and the person of Jesus come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So perhaps you're wondering, where where is God How would you answer that for you this evening? Or what would a relationship with God even look like? Perhaps you're here and and the idea of Christianity is um, uh, either new or perhaps you've been a Christian a long time. And both of you could be asking the very same question. I'm not sure what it looks like to know this Jesus. Either... I've lost my first love, or I'm not sure how to even do it. If that's the case, Mary's story, this story, it reminds us again and again where he is found, where God is found. God is found in Jesus, who came to dwell with sinners in order to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves so that 
by trusting in him, you might enjoy him. You might be known fully and know that you can be fully known and fully loved and fully accepted all at the very same time. That's the good news of Jesus' birth, of Emmanuel dwelling with his people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this story. We thank you that we have it recorded for us. Even with all the questions and uh, mystery and difficulties that it perhaps may raise for us, the hope of it still shines through and is good news for us that we can't just be indifferent to because if it's true, everything has changed. You've come. You have lived the life that we should have lived and you have died the death that we deserve to die. And you have come as our rescuer. You came as a baby, weak, utterly dependent. And yet you came to give your life as a ransom for many. Thank you. We ask that you would work by your Holy Spirit to help us to receive this good news, to not run away from you, but to run towards you because you have already laid hold of us in this good news. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.